The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Good afternoon and welcome to The Water Cooler. I'm Sophie Mann sitting in for David Brody. We've got a great show for you today, so let's get to it. The CDC has announced that Americans who have been vaccinated against COVID-19 will now be able to travel domestically and internationally without tests or quarantines, though they are still expected to wear masks in public and while traveling. Fully vaccinated Americans who choose to travel internationally do, however, still need to receive a negative COVID test before boarding planes back to the United States. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene introduced a bill yesterday to strip Dr. Anthony Fauci of his government salary. In a press release posted to her Twitter account, Greene wrote that the Fire Fauci Act would decrease Dr. Always Wrong's pay to zero and the We Will Not Comply Act will prevent discrimination against the unvaccinated. Fauci is currently the highest paid doctor in the federal government and in fact the highest paid of all four million federal employees, though Congress does not appropriate his salary. According to a new report from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, the American economy added 916,000 jobs last month. That figure represents the largest jobs increase since August of last year. The employment rate also dipped to 6%. Both of these numbers have been tied to the increased vaccination effort across the country, which has allowed Americans to return to the workforce. We'll break down this number a little bit more later later on during today's program with Dr. Dave Bratt of Liberty University. But right now, let's take a closer look at the trial that has captivated American attention this week and will likely continue to do so into next week. Here to discuss what we've seen and what we're going to see during the murder trial of former officer Derek Chauvin is Harvard Law Professor Emeritus and criminal attorney. He is also the show of the podcast The Der Show, Alan Dershowitz. Alan, always great to see you. Well, thank you for having me on your show. I always love to be on this show. Of course. So, Alan, uh, it's been a big week for this trial. Give us a quick uh, summary update on what you've seen. Well, there are only two issues in the case. There's been a lot of emotion, but there are only two issues. Number mm-hmm. one, did the neck cause the death of George Floyd? That's going to be very disputed because of George Floyd's history of heavy drug use and a lot of drugs found in his body, coupled with his high blood pressure and heart condition. And so there's going to be a great debate mm-hmm. uh, among experts as to what was the cause of death. And the second issue is going to be what was the level of his intent? Was it enough for second degree, third degree murder, or was it only enough for uh, manslaughter or not at all? And so those are the key issues. Uh, but when you have a trial like this, a lot of time is spent on foundation, on emotional issues. But keep your eye on the two issues, causation and intent. Sure. So, I mean, here's my interpretation of what's going on. On the one hand, a lot of people believe that this is pretty much an open and shut case and that uh, former officer Chauvin is guilty. On the other hand, a lot of people believe that George Floyd died of a self-inflicted drug overdose, essentially. What we know is that Derek Chauvin, if acquitted, if he is acquitted, that essentially guarantees riots throughout the city of uh, Minneapolis and perhaps the state of Minnesota and the country uh, on the whole, as we saw this summer, jurors will almost certainly be targets if he's acquitted. Do you think that given the sort of surrounding intensity of 
the case, an honest verdict is likely or possible? I don't think it's possible. I don't think a fair trial is possible. The trial should have been moved outside of Minneapolis. It should have been moved to a rural area where people are not in fear that if they vote to acquit or vote for a hung jury or vote for a manslaughter rather than a murder conviction, their businesses, their schools, their children, their own lives might be at risk. The judge seemed to recognize this when he had an anonymous jury. We don't know the names of the jurors and mm -hmm. the protesters, names of the jurors, but they will leak out and uh, it will be uh, a risk to them. And you don't want any thumb or in this case, an elbow on the scale of justice, jurors being fearful that if they come to what they believe is the right verdict, it could cause riots and violence that could affect them. So it is a big factor. And when you get people like Al Sharpton and, and uh, others saying America is on trial or the lawyer saying this is a referendum on racial justice in America. No, it isn't. It's a single criminal case about whether the government can prove all the elements of the crime against the defendant beyond a reasonable doubt. And it's a very close case on issues of causation and on degree. You say it's open and shut that he's guilty. Even if he's guilty, the question is, is he guilty of manslaughter or is he guilty of murder? And if murder is a second degree murder or third degree murder, these are very hard issues. The judge seems to be quite good, quite able. I think he made a serious mistake keeping the case in uh, Minneapolis, but during the trial itself, he seems to be very fair. So how do you think then we sort of got to this place in the country where a fair trial will be unlikely, if not impossible? And do you think that there's anything that can be done to fix that? Look, America is in trouble. You can't have a fair trial today regarding the Me Too movement. You can't have a fair trial today regarding what happened at the Capitol. Mm -hmm. uh, people are emotionally invested in one side or another. It, it would be as if you try to have a fair trial as to whether the Red Sox or the Yankees are, are a better baseball team. You're going to get the Red Sox fans going one way and the Yankee fans going the other way. Not me. I'm a Red Sox fan, and I think the Yankees have a better team right now. So I can be fair. Right. But most people have a hard time being fair and to go to a more serious issue. When you get to a case like this, look, what Chauvin did was absolutely unacceptable. There's a special place in hell for him. But that's up to God and that's up to the angels and the devils to decide. A special place in hell. What he did is utterly unjustified. But whether he is guilty or not, and whether if he is guilty, he's guilty of murder or manslaughter, these are the kinds of questions that distinguish between a nation governed by the rule of law and countries like Iran or China or Russia, where it would be an open and shut case. But if you have jurors, 12 jurors with two alternates, Deciding based on the law, it is anything but an open and shut case, and the mob should have no influence on its outcome. So what do you think we can do in this country to sort of set, uh, set the culture back on a path where these questions of mob rule no longer play into, you know, trials that are, as you say, about one instance and not referendums on entire societal issues? First thing we do is stop electing prosecutors. Look who's the prosecutor in this mm -hmm. case. Prosecutor in this case is Keith Ellison who has a history of racism, bigotry, uh, support for the Reverend Farrakhan, anti-white uh, bigotry. Uh, he's not the person who should be uh, making these decisions. Or in New York, you have an attorney general who campaigned, campaigned for election on the promise of getting Trump. Mm -hmm. So we should never have elected prosecutors. We should never have elected judges. It should be a very professional system, mm -hmm. which is immunized from external uh, pressures outside. If this were a professional prosecutor and not Keith Ellison, this defendant would be charged with manslaughter, mm -hmm. uh, reckless 
causing the death, not murder, which yeah. requires either an intent or felony murder. The elements of murder are not established here, but the prosecutor couldn't survive election if he didn't charge murder, even though I'm sure he knows this is not really a murder case. This is a manslaughter case. Mm, that's interesting. So, I mean, just very briefly looking ahead to next week, I mean, you know, we heard from the prosecution this week. What do you expect we'll be hearing from the defense next week? I think we'll hear science, 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 and then maybe the defendant. So the two elements are going to be causation. And for that, you need science. Was it caused in fact? What were the elements that contributed to the death? We'll hear a lot of scientific testimony. It'll be disputed by the other side. Then the hardest decision will be whether to put Chauvin on the witness stand. I have a friend who used to be, a, he's retired now, used to be a criminal lawyer, used to charge $100,000 to represent somebody at trial. Mm -hmm. He said 5000 of it was for the trial itself. 95000 was for making the decision whether to put the defendant on the witness stand. Wow. That's that decision is. I don't think that decision has been made in this case yet, and it probably won't be made until the close of the prosecution's case. What do you think the um, sort of component factors in that decision are here? I think if they think they've won the scientific case, they won't put him on the witness stand. If they think they've lost the scientific case and the issue comes down to intent, then they probably will put him on the witness stand because his testimony might very well reduce the charges from murder to manslaughter. Sure. We obviously can't know yet, but are you, do you, do you, are you expecting some sort of a guilty verdict here? I think if you have to bet widows and orphans money that you can't afford to lose, you would have to bet on some form of a guilty verdict. Um, but I think a hung jury is possible. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a verdict of manslaughter is possible if the judge instructs properly and if the jury follows the judge's instructions. But look, nobody expected an acquittal in the O.J. Simpson case, True. except people, by the way, who watched the trial. It was interesting. Statistics show that if you watch the O.J. trial, you weren't even born then or you were a kid when that happened. But mm -hmm. it really happened 25 years ago. Yeah. Uh, if you watch the O.J. trial from gavel to gavel, you weren't surprised at the outcome. If, on the other hand, you just listened to CNN or read The New York Times, you were shocked because you got the case through the biased filter of the media that desperately wanted a conviction. The same thing is true now. If you listen to CNN, this is an open and shut case. But if you watch the actual trial, you see it's a complex litigation and the outcome can't be accurately predicted at this point. That's so interesting. I mean, well, we'll continue to watch closely. Thank you so much, Alan, for weighing in with your expertise on this matter today. Again, Alan Dershowitz, the host of the podcast, The Dersh Show. We will be right back after a very quick commercial break with the former mayor of Baltimore, Stephanie Rawlings-Blake. You're watching The Water Cooler. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. 
Welcome back to the Water Cooler. We've heard a lot this week about budget spending and the new infrastructure bill. Here to continue to help break us break help us break that down is the former mayor of Baltimore, Stephanie Stephanie Rawlings Blake. Stephanie, good to see you. Uh, good to be here. How are you? Doing well, thank you. So let's get into it. I mean, massive infrastructure plan revealed earlier this week by Joe Biden, spoken about um, a lot by Nancy Pelosi since since uh, the exact plan has been revealed to us. What is your immediate reaction to this significant um, $2 trillion infrastructure plan? That is long overdue. Um, our infrastructure is crumbling, period. Uh, it is a fact that our federal government has neglected the upkeep of our roads, our bridges, our uh, water systems uh, across the country. And uh, this is something that is not just needed to help us to have a safe country, uh, but it will help with our global competitiveness as well. Sure. So, I mean, this bill is uh, being criticized by the Republican caucus for being in part, as you mentioned, an infrastructure bill. And we've heard from a lot of uh, bipartisan voices that roads and highways are certainly an issue that the federal government should be focused on, but that this is packed with a lot of other sorts of spending as well. Uh, in particular, there are, you know, $100 billion in this bill going toward literally rebuilding schools. There's, of course, some housing and urban development in it that uh, sort of approaches approaches housing equity in a certain sort of political way. What do you think about some of the other types of spending that are included in here that, as you say, are not just directed at roads? Well, I think it is a comprehensive bill. And while you are calling it spending that is political, I think it's spending that is responsive to the history of this country. Uh, we have projects in Baltimore and all over the country, uh, infrastructure projects that have had very deleterious effects on uh, communities of color, poor communities. And recognizing that, mm -hmm. understanding that in the past, our federal government has put forth uh, infrastructure plans that have had negative impacts on poor community. I don't think recognizing that is a is political. I mm -hmm. think it is justice. And the fact that uh, President Biden wants to address some of those things that are happening that have happened across our country is responsible government. Sure. I mean, well, so in particular, let's get into the school part of this bill a little bit. As I mentioned, $100 billion of this have been proposed to uh, to literally improve the structures of schools. So this isn't isn't what children will be learning or being taught in classrooms or anything like that. It literally will go to to the edif the edifices, the literal buildings um, and improving them. We spoke with uh, former HUD secretary Ben Carson yesterday, and he said that he felt like this was sort of misdirected funding, um, primarily because he's no longer sure that American public schools are where parents want to be sending their kids, you know, especially over the past year where children have largely not been physically in school. And I mean, some places, especially like cities, big urban centers like Baltimore have been much slower than other places to physically return the children to the schools. He's saying that parents are pivoting to homeschool and community schooling. So in terms of spending models, the government should be forward thinking, progressive even, in terms of the policies that they are spending, you know, hundreds of billions of taxpayer dollars on. And to him, that meant thinking about the school models as opposed to literally the buildings of these school systems that may not even be working. I mean, in Baltimore specifically, this year, the high school graduation rate hit a six-year low. So how would you respond to a point like that that, you know, is, is about sort of thinking more about a model of school that would better serve students as opposed to um, artificially kind of, um, or superficially rather, fixing the buildings? 
So first, I don't think uh, making sure that the buildings that we send our most cherished, um, our, our most cherished part of our of our uh, community, our children. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that fixing the the buildings that we send them to every day for their education is uh, superficial at all. Mm -hmm. I think it is vital. And while I have the utmost respect for Dr. Carson's medical uh, training, his education, his ability, he is he was and still remains out of touch when it comes to housing and education policy. Uh, that is just not his uh, expertise. Um, when it comes to what parents want, uh, parents want and deserve a quality educate a, a quality public education system, and that means making sure that our schools are places that are safe for our young people. Uh, many schools, uh, we had to deal with this in Baltimore, have water fountains where the young people cannot drink from because there is lead in the water. Many many schools have uh, classrooms that cannot be used because of um, no heat or uh, no air conditioning when the uh, temperatures require them to be so. Um, our buildings, our school buildings, where we are sending the future of our country should reflect the greatness of our country. And until we have top quality school buildings, we mm -hmm. cannot expect our young people to think that their education is important. We have to invest in the buildings and the models. So talking about we should do um, focus on the models more than the um, more than the buildings itself. I think is selling us short. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can make sure our buildings are safe, that are they that they are state of the art, and make sure that we are focused on educating our kids to be ready for the new economy. So, do you think these buildings, some that you've described as dilapidated, others that are in serious need of improvement for, as you say, the safety of the future? thought leaders of America. Do you think that's the reason that Baltimore is currently suffering such a high dropout rate? No. Uh, that, the, again, you're conflating the issues. I'm talking about making sure we have safe schools. Um, there is no one, one reason why any school district, including Baltimore, um, has challenges. So, Mayor, final question. What do you think is the single most important issue addressed in this massive infrastructure package? I think jobs, uh, the jobs that will be created in this country, there's no way to outsource infrastructure jobs. Uh, people in this country need jobs. The roads are here, the bridges are here, the railways are here, the schools are here. Those are jobs that will uh, put America back to work in a way that we haven't seen in over a generation. Well, Mayor, thank you so much for your input on this issue today. We always appreciate hearing from you. Thank you. My pleasure. When we come back, we'll be talking to Nathan Gonzalez, the editor of Inside Edition. He'll be taking us through some of the Democratic strategy for the 2022 election. That's right after the break. You're watching The Water Cooler. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. 
show with 2022 right around the corner. We've focused a whole lot in previous shows about what the road ahead looks like for Republicans hoping to win back the House and the Senate. But what we haven't heard as much about are what Democrats' plans are. Here now to give us some insights into that matter is Nathan Gonzalez, the editor of Inside Elections. Nathan, good afternoon. How are you? Hi, Sophie. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for being here. So as I said, we've been thinking a whole lot about Republican strategy moving forward over the next 18 months or so with their obvious goals of taking back majorities in the House and the Senate. What we haven't heard as much about is exactly where Democrats' minds are at. I mean, in an obvious sense, they're focused on policymaking and legislating right now. But when it comes to 2022, what is the DNC thinking? Well, I think, first of all, the policymaking and the campaigning or legislation or legislating um, campaigning are not mutually exclusive. Right. Mm -hmm. I think the first thing for Democrats, the first thing on their minds is to do a good job. You know, they are in power and, and ultimately the midterms are most likely to be a referendum on whether they the American people think they did a good job or not. And so Democrats are focused on, you know, trying to. Uh, boost the economy, trying to get the country through the coronavirus uh, crisis, just trying to get the country healthier. And, and so if if Democrats believe that if they do a good job, voters will reward them in 2022 or at a minimum won't punish them in 2022, because usually when we've talked about the history before, midterm elections usually don't go well for the president's party. Right. And in part, that's because when a uh, the president isn't on the ballot and voters are dissatisfied with the direction of the country, then they take it out on the president's party. So uh, Democrats are hoping that the country people will look back at, you know, if we're in 2022, they'll look back at where we were in 2020 and 2021 and say, wow, you know, we're in a better place. But only time will tell whether, you know, ultimately we are in a better place than when they first took power. Right. So, I mean, on that note, one thing that you have been focused a lot upon recently is this idea of redistricting, which will give both Republicans but also Democrats sort of a better idea of where they need to be focusing their effort. And furthermore, which House seats in particular will be in the most danger, which races will become the tightest and hardest to sort of predict uh, prior to the election. So where are we on the redistricting issue? Yeah, well, you're right. The talking about the fight for the House is just more complicated this cycle because of redistricting. It's We can't just look at the members, the Democratic members who represent uh, districts that President Trump carried or that won very narrowly and say that those are the vulnerable uh, Democratic members because we don't know what these districts are going to look like. You know, we could spend three hours that we don't have uh, talking about redistricting, but we are we are just d d uh, delayed in the entire process. The U.S. Census Bureau is delayed in delivering key data to the states in order for them to draw these new maps. Every 10 years after the census, uh, we go through reapportionment uh, where uh, states are going to gain or lose or districts based on a gain or loss in population, and then we redraw the maps. And so we can't, we don't know ultimately who is vulnerable in the House of Representatives until we know what these districts look like. And and so that is delaying things. Um, that's delaying things considerably. Uh, I went back and looked, and 10 years ago, uh, by October of the off year, so this upcoming October, there were uh, almost half of the 435 congressional districts, we knew what the new lines, what the new districts look like. Right. But right now, the Census Bureau isn't even scheduled or likely to deliver that data to the states until the end of September wow. to start drawing the lines. And so everything is just getting delayed. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I remember hearing this summer that the Census Bureau was missing deadline after deadline on this issue. I mean, uh, largely, of course, due to the 
coronavirus pandemic, but what sort of ripple effects do you see that having both in the RNC and DNC and, you know, the various other kind of uh, campaign arms of both parties? Are they sort of stressed out about this? Are they moving forward with general strategies? Do you think that this is going to have some sort of impact on the 2022 race that's you know, the keyword being unprecedented that continues to be unprecedented due to sort of the the coronavirus induced delay that the census is experiencing. Well, the whole election process, specifically in the House, is going to be condensed um, because it, it delays when you don't know what the districts look like. It delays um, challengers getting into races. Mm-hmm. You know, there are people out there who want to run for Congress or want to challenge uh, incumbents, but they don't know what the districts, you know, are, are specifically looking like, and and so that it's delaying that piece of it. Um, it's also might be delaying some House members in trying mm-hmm. to decide whether they want to run for the U.S. Senate, whether they want to run for governor. You know, some of them, if they get drawn into a district that is difficult to win re-election, maybe because of a primary or a general in a typical redistricting cycle. They would if they got a, if they got a bad district then they would say, well, I'm better off running statewide or running for something else. But everything is so delayed that they might not. These House members might not be able to wait until new maps come out before making a decision about whether they want to run for the Senate or run for governor. And so it's uh, and, and just fundamentally, some states are probably going to have to move their primaries if they are early in 2022. Uh, to later because they won't have the map done, then there you know then there won't be enough time for filing, enough time for early voting. Uh, I don't. I, I I hate to bum everyone out on a, on a Friday, you know, talking about elections, but just prepare yourself that the the fight for the house is just going to be complicated and a little bit messy because of this redistricting process. Wow, that is so interesting. So we're really going to still be feeling these messy election results into 2022. That is just sort of an unfathomable result of the ongoing pandemic. Very quickly before we have to go, Nathan, uh, another thing we're going to see is a bunch of states lose and gain some House seats. What What's that going to mean in terms of the delay? Are some, you know, um, Congress people going to be redistricted out of their seats and some are going to pop up and, you know, suddenly have new races that are up for grabs? What can we expect on that front? Right. So the first part is reapportionment, where because the goal of, of reapportionment is that every 10 years, try to make all congressional districts roughly the same size, because over the course of 10 years, some districts are booming with population, some are losing. So this is trying to even it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for example, Texas is most likely to gain three House seats. Florida is wow. likely to gain two. Um, and other, a few other states are going to gain one. That also means that some states are going to lose seats because we, we will still have 435 total. Then we go to redistricting, and this is where um, some members are going to be drawn into districts against a colleague of the same party. So they might decide if they have if they want to run through a, a bloody primary with a colleague of the same party, or they might face an incumbent of another party. Uh, but and you know, districts can be drawn to dramatically impact one party. Uh, over the other, but you still have to have good candidates. You still have to run the campaigns. We don't know what the mood of the electorate overall is going to be. And so there's, it's not a guarantee, you know, that one party is going to succeed, even if the, the lines are drawn in their favor. Nathan, thank you so much for those insights. We know you'll keep us up to date and informed as 2022 draws ever nearer. Yep, no problem. We'll see you next time. See you next time. When we come back, Dr. Dave Bratt, the dean of the business school at Liberty University, will be filling us in on some new jobs numbers. You're watching The Water Cooler. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to The Water Cooler, everyone. Today, the Bureau of Labor Statistics unveiled its March jobs report summary. And as mentioned in a Just the News headline, it found that the economy added 916,000 jobs in March as the vaccine rollout helped speed along the coronavirus recovery. Joining me now to break this all down is Dr. Dave Bratt, Dean of the Business School at Liberty University. Dave, good afternoon. How are you? Afternoon, Sophie. Thanks for having me on. Of course. So uh, I want to very quickly throw up a press release put out this morning by Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who said that the jobs report is resounding evidence that under congressional Democrats and President Biden, help is here and essentially said that it's because of Democratic leadership that over 100 million vaccine doses have been delivered and 100 million checks have been sent out. You know, essentially, she was taking credit entirely and giving it to the Democratic Party for these great jobs numbers we've been seeing for these great vaccine rollout numbers we've been seeing. What's your reaction to what Speaker Pelosi said and to sort of these job numbers as a whole and what it says about how the economy is doing? Yeah, it's very hard to fight that narrative because it takes more than a sentence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but roughly, you know, we, we've taken on an additional $10 trillion in debt on the backs of your generation mm-hmm. uh, to send checks out to people and to create jobs and to create work. And a lot of it is through the federal government, right? Mm-hmm. So that is not, that is not the, the real economy at work. It's not the engine running. How can it be when so many small firms are, are bankrupt or still at you know half capacity everywhere right. you look across America? And so uh, what's really going on, and this is worrisome, the left is using this crisis as usual uh, to, to just smash the real economy uh, and to make the American people more dependent and addicted to these $1,000 checks, uh, which is not enough to base your uh, lifetime horizon on. And uh, the kids are still shut out of school. And so the prospects for a, a, an economy that produced uh, the greatest country on earth uh, is steadily declining intentionally, in my view. And so that, that's the reality of, uh, of that jobs report. It looks good now, of course, because you got $7 trillion from the Federal Reserve uh, in funny money printed, and you got mm. $10 trillion in debt to pay for the uh, fake economy. Yeah, well, so, I mean, you mentioned the word narrative, which I think is interesting. It seems to me that the narrative coming out of these numbers this morning is that they are really trying very hard to tie them to the vaccine distribution plan. And I mean, both of these are good things. It's good for Americans to get vaccinated and it's good for the economy to be adding numbers. But in terms of literally tying these numbers together, do you think that's an appropriate thing to do? Do you think it it makes sense and it actually is the corollary here that is leading to these uh, skyrocketing numbers? No, no. And, and, and the clearest evidence uh, is the stock market, right? The stock market is not the economy. Mm-hmm. The stock market is a snapshot of expected future profits, largely from the biggest firms in our country. So they're doing well mm-hmm. uh, because like in the financial crisis, they all survived. No one went uh, to jail for criminality. Right. Uh, the middle class got socked. And again, that's what's happening, right? The middle class is getting socked. The stock market's going up. So they say, oh, look, this is all great. 
stock market's going up because they see $5 trillion in new stimulus going through the swamp, likely through Green New Deals. Mm -hmm. The infrastructure's got about 10% of it going to roads and the rest going to <laughs> crony capitalists. Right. And the American people, any, any day now, they have to shift their voting patterns uh, if they want their kids to have a life. Right. I mean, well, so you're talking about uh, the Green New Deal, uh, the, the most recent stimulus bill, now the new infrastructure plan, all of yeah. this spending. And it is a lot, a lot, a lot of spending, many trillions yeah. of dollars. Of course, the Biden administration has been tepid to tell the absolute truth about their new taxation plan. But we know there's one coming because somehow these numbers need to be paid for. In your estimation, even though this jobs report did show real growth in the U.S. economy, where is the U.S. economy and how can we expect it to fare? I mean, one thing we've been hearing is that uh, with all of this spending compounded with a weakened economy due to the coronavirus and then again compounded with a dollar that is losing some of its value due to hyperinflation, where do you think this could lead to? Lead to? I mean, these are not these are not an amazing set of circumstances. No, no. I did a PhD in economics, right? If you want a serious answer, economic growth is caused by three things. Capital stocks, machinery, human capital, scientists and engineers, et cetera, and technology. And just ask yourself, you know, how widely dispersed are those three things throughout the United States? Okay, it's good in Silicon Valley. Great. It's good in Boston. It's good in the Research Triangle or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not widely dispersed across the United States, across all 50 states. What will be dispersed is political largesse, uh, where bridges are going to be built to nowhere uh, with, with no productivity tied mm -hmm. to them, right? So you'd be better off giving a certain amount to every state and letting them have to sort it out uh, and make that as transparent as you can, but that, that'll never happen. It'll all go through the swamp. Uh, the, the, the lawyers, the attorneys, uh, the crooks will take 20% off the top distribute some of it to some good stuff, and most of it will go uh, straight to the waste bin. How would you like to see Republicans in Congress, who obviously are at a disadvantage here, but nonetheless, it's their job to legislate, how would you like to see them uh, sort of fighting to counteract these efforts by the Democrats to sort of spend the United States into an uncomfortable financial situation? Yeah, well, you, you just hit the nail on the head. How would I like to see them? I would like to see them. Okay. <laughs> We have five trillion going through, and I don't see anyone. Mm -hmm. We got the capital fenced in. We got a crisis at the border. No one's mentioned China. They're still at war with us, right? 1999 document in case uh, McCarthy and uh, the head of the Senate uh, McConnell missed it. Mm -hmm. They've declared war against us on paper. It, there's no mystery. Get up and read it on TV, and then and then let's have some policy in response. But uh, our leadership is just hiding as usual. Just wait two years, raise some money. It's okay if we go Marxist a little bit more, wow. right? It's not a completely totalitarian regime yet. Uh, so, you know, just wait a few years and hopefully we'll win the majority. And when we get it, we won't do anything like when we just had it uh, a few years ago when I was there. We mm -hmm. squandered our leadership opportunity. Sure, makes sense. I mean, hopefully they begin to act sooner than that. Dr. Dave Bratt, thank you so much for joining us today. You bet. Thank you, Sophie. Have a great weekend. Coming up, we're going to take you through the last sip. So stick around and we'll be right back. You're watching The Water Cooler. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. 
Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to the water cooler. It's time now for the last sip. Dr. Leanna Wen is a doctor at the George Washington University who appeared last evening on CNN anchor Chris Cuomo's show to talk about the idea of reopening the United States of America in a post-pandemic world and why specifically she wanted to tie that to vaccination policies. We have a clip of it now that I'd like to take a look at. We have a very narrow window to tie reopening policy to vaccination status, because otherwise, if everything is reopened, then what's the carrot going to be? So again, that was Dr. Leanna Wen appearing on Chris Cuomo's show, advocating for the Biden administration to tie reopening policy to a must-do vaccination policy in order for Americans to again be able to return to their civic lives, sort of post a pre-pandemic world. I mean, and if you think I'm taking that quotation out of context, I'll read the whole thing for you. What she said exactly was, we have to make it clear to them that the vaccine is the ticket back to pre-pandemic life. And the window to do that is really narrowing. You were mentioning, Chris, how all these states are reopening. They're reopening at 100%. And we have a very narrow window to tie reopening policy to vaccination status. Because otherwise, if everything is reopening, then what's the carrot going to be? How are we going to incentivize people to get vaccinated. So that's why I think the CDC and the Biden administration needs to come out a lot bolder and say, if you're vaccinated, you can do all these things. Here are all these freedoms that you have, because otherwise people are going to go out and enjoy these freedoms anyway. Can you imagine going out and enjoying these freedoms Anyway, as Americans, maybe just reopening and beginning lives again when things are safe. I mean, vaccines are a great thing. They keep people safe. We are excited that they are working and that more and more Americans are getting them every day. But this is exactly what people are worried about. This is exactly what people have been coming to the fore to complain about over the past few weeks as the idea of vaccine passports are floated more and more regularly. You know, this idea of proof of vaccination to do anything, to go to a sports game, to go to a concert, to travel internationally. You know, the CDC just said that even if you are vaccinated, you're going to have to continue wearing masks. Why? It's sort of unclear. But nonetheless, those are the rules. And I think that there, when you're conducting interviews like this on national TV, it gives real weight to the sort of fears that Americans have been voicing this entire time, that once you give the federal government these powers, they will be extremely reticent to hand them back to the people, even when those people are the people of the United States of America, the freest country in the world. And that's your last sip. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the water cooler. It's the end of the show. And you know what I realized we didn't do yesterday was David's favorite part of the show. Well, at least he claims it's his favorite part of the show, but we all know that David's favorite part is the last sip. Let us know actually where you think David's been this week. Write right into us at the water cooler at justthenews.com with your best guess of where our favorite anchor has been this week. All right. Now, without further ado, let's actually get to the poll of the day. The water cooler. 
poll of the day. So here's today's poll. When the pandemic is over, some health officials have suggested that people should continue wearing masks in public to help reduce the transmission of other diseases. How likely is it that you would continue wearing a mask in public when the pandemic is over is what we asked our poll pollsters this week. Uh, 28% of them said very likely, 25 somewhat likely, 18% responded not very likely, 23 said not at all likely, and 5% said they're not sure. To help analyze this poll further, I want to bring in Just the News news editor, Joe Weber. Joe, what's going on? How are you? So if you take it and split it down the middle between the likelies and the unlikelies, the, um, those that are uh, likely not to, it's about 53% compared to 64%. So it, it's pretty close. Um, one of the things that um, the um, other Bible, the Associated Press style book, the Bible mm. for journalists says never conduct an informal man on the street poll. But uh, I'm going to take it and say that um, I would probably at some point go without the mask just for a bit at least to be able to breathe some fresh air. Um, are you willing to take the poll? I'll go ahead and take the poll for you. I mean, listen, I, I think you're right. I think it's springtime and people are tired of wearing these masks, though. You know, I saw a different poll conducted this week that said that, you know, some number of people, I think 69 out of 100 people said that they still wouldn't be comfortable without a mask in a full stadium full of people who had been entirely vaccinated. So I think that's something that we understand from this past year is that people are going to be afraid of sort of going maskless in public for a long time to come. We're wary at the, at the very least. Uh, one other point I'm going to point out to you, that, as you know, our colleague David Payne, who writes these polls, suggested this was a major flashpoint, the mask. And I was going to try to take him to test like an editor does all reporters. But I really can't think, maybe with the exception of the shutdown, uh, the mask probably been the biggest sort of political point. Would you agree? I think that's probably right, Joe. Well, thanks so much for helping us analyze the poll of the day. Uh, we hope you have an amazing Easter this weekend. David Brody will return on Monday. Until then, have a great weekend.